For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Good evening. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur presented by FL Montreal, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar and filling in for FL's Josh Miller tonight is Mike Newton. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. And this evening, we're going to talk to Rob uh, Sibthorpe of Love Pack. They are packaging manufacturers. They deal with a lot with, uh, you know, shipping things and uh, and the, the I guess the, the most um, visceral part of marketing is the one that you get when you buy an item and Take that box home. Yeah, they do some pretty nice stuff, so it'll be interesting. Uh, see if we can convey that over the radio to uh, to our listeners. Nick Moraitis will join us later in the program as well, tax partner at FL. He'll go through in detail some of the proposed uh, tax changes to small business uh, that the consultation ending period was ending today. We'll get to that story in a second. I know, Mike, you want to weigh in on that. Uh, but first, a couple of other entrepreneurial news and notes. Um, let's actually begin there with, uh, with the small business cons- consultations. Uh, they've ended today. Uh, you, Mike, um, as well as several of your clients were among those who were writing into uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau expressing your your concern. Could you give us a quick recap of what the changes are and and why you think they're problematic for a small business? Well, I think I'm not going to get into too many of the changes because Nick is going to do that towards the end. And, you know, if I start talking tax, he gets the shakes and uh, and he starts to sweat. So (laughs) I'm going to look at it, uh, I think, the implications across the board. And and I really think what has been proposed at this point um, is is really detrimental to uh, economic growth within our country. Uh, It's going to leave us exposed to to international markets. And I think it really really, really is a difficult position to have, uh, as it's initially proposed, to uh, to transfer a business within a family. Uh, you know, those, those those scenarios, it's hard enough to get that next generation to succeed when, you know, the uh, the success rates and passing down from first to second generation are, you know, start to get into the teens in terms of success. Third generation, you got about a three or four percent chance of actually succeeding. Add to it a, a rather onerous tax transition process, and uh, I think uh, you're going to start seeing people sell uh, outward, uh, and unfortunately, I think that's that may come at the expense of Canadian uh, ownership. So the government is selling it as tax fairness. Um, what do you make of, of that argument? Well, tax fairness, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder at the end of the day. I mean, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, the whole discussion of the 1%, unfortunately, I don't think this whole discussion of tax reform has anything to do with the 1% and is really hitting at that middle and, and, and upper middle class entrepreneur who really is uh, looking out for him and his family. I, I can understand the the discrediting of uh, some very wealthy uh, people and trying to bring that back within our our society. But the reality is, I don't think there's too many people worth half a billion dollars that really care about an $800,000 capital gains exemption. I think your ordinary entrepreneur or employing part of his family certainly does. How many, uh, how would, how, how much of the small and medium-sized business community would you estimate this affects? Oh, I think this is going to have a huge effect. I mean, I, I listened to a stat the other day that, that I've almost fell off my chair, that the top 10% of taxpayers um, pay over 73% of the total tax bill. Um, so I don't know how much more you can drag out of, uh, of a group of people and, and find out that it's not going to come at a cost to either uh, training, uh, mentoring new people that are coming into the business, cutting some kind of social cost. And my big fear at the end of the day is, is if we can't keep our entrepreneurs going, what does that mean to the next generation and social welfare and everything else that, you know, entrepreneurs have been very good at, at maintaining their family and their close uh, close friends that, uh, you know, uh, without having to put a strain on the, on the financial system. Uh, I think what we're looking at right now is a huge risk of upfront grab for long-term pain here. 
So coming up after 7.45, Nick's, Nick Morita's tax partner at FL will go through uh, in greater detail some of those tax changes and how it could affect your business. So stay tuned for that. Uh, that, again, is after 7.45. Speaking of uh, handing over a family business uh, to the next generation, interesting article by Rick Spence in the Gazette this week, uh, or recently, rather, about uh, last day or so, actually, about uh, about that transition. And, uh, and Mike, you were saying that it's it's becoming more and more difficult to pass along a business to well, to uh, pre- next generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, the, the, the success rates of a, of a family business transition uh, are, you know, dramatically decreased at each generation. So by the time you get to a third generation, you're in single digit success rate. By the time you get to a fourth generation, you're under 3%. Uh, you know what, that, that that's not an easy task on a good day. Um, so the reality of trying to complicate that process is, is not simple. Uh, I certainly think the Montreal market, we've lost a lot of people. You know, you go back to the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, we lost a lot of young entrepreneurs who left because of various political reasons and, and whatever the case be. I really would hate to think that some kind of tax reform is going to start to, to discourage the next generation from staying around. The article touches on sort of tips to, to hand over that family business. Could you throw out some tips of your own? 100%. I, mean, I think, you know, anybody who's, who's got a business has to plan far enough ahead. Unfortunately, the family business finds itself in many cases in a very uh, loose governance uh, style uh, and finds itself in a uh, kind of a wishy-washy structure. Uh, one of the things that I think any family business should do is treat itself like it's a business, whether it's selling to the next generation or it's selling to a third party. Uh, and I think that what everybody needs to recognize is structure is is not all it's, uh, you know, cracked up to be sometimes, but I think without some kind of minimal level of structure, you have a very difficult time. And a large problem with a lot of family businesses is the decision becomes an emotional decision and not a financial one. And I'm not sure how you can, uh, uh, you know, weigh through things properly if uh, you can't determine if little Johnny or little Sally is uh, capable of doing it. There's actually a term for it, which is called pruning the family tree, which is, you know, not one of the favored terms, I guess, but uh, it certainly uh, gets the message across. And in some cases, the family is just not capable of carrying on the business and you need to bring in. It doesn't mean you don't have to have them in the business, but it means sometimes you need to bring in a third party to create some form of, of structure and governance. One part of that Gazette article uh, is kind of interesting. It suggests that those uh, family members who go out on their own and then develop careers on their own successfully and come back later on, uh, that ends up being better for the business. 100%. And one of the things we've encouraged entrepreneurs to do for a long time with family is is if they're going to send them off, in a lot of cases they'll send them off to university, encourage them to go work somewhere else for two, three, four years. What it does is it gives them a sense of what working for non-family members really like uh, without a little bit of favoritism, a little nepotism. Uh, and I think the other aspect of uh, of having them go out somewhere is when they come back into the business, they come in with some credibility. Uh, little Johnny and little Sally coming in right out of university uh, to get a top job at dad or mom's business doesn't carry an awful lot of weight. If they've been somewhere and they've worked somewhere for three or four years and have worked their way up a corporate ladder, when they come in, they've got some instant credibility with staff. And it's not just the fact that they're related to someone. In the Financial Post from a few days ago, David Siegel, local Montreal entrepreneur from David's Tea fame, mm-hmm. um, he writes that uh, loyalty card programs should just die. Uh, what do you think about uh, about his stance? Well, I think there's there's been a little bit of a discussion in, in in the the significance and the value of loyalty programs. I think for a long time we all bought into the loyalty program being your way to maintain clients. I think is David's uh, statement really sticks to the whole discussion of what are you providing to your customers, and if you provide it provide 
something that they want. That is the loyalty program in and of itself. If you're, you know, trying to 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 address a environmentally conscious uh, uh, crowd, well, you know, that solid base of, of of practice and procedure should be your loyalty program. And I shouldn't have to provide them miles because ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a whole big debate going on and has gone on for years in terms of what are these loyalty programs really worth? How flexible are they? And are they really nothing more than some kind of disguised way to bring you in that they're hard to execute. Here's what David Siegel wrote in the Financial Post. Study after study has shown that uh, they they just don't work. You essentially discount your brand in exchange for customer data, which feels cheap and tawdry. In the long run, it doesn't yield economic returns. Studies, studies have shown that companies uh, with a higher spend on loyalty programs earn, on average, 10% less than their competitors. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't be surprised. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, if, if, if your attraction to bringing somebody in is your product, uh, you're not discounting in order to get them to walk through the front door. Every time I give you something for coming in and say thank you very much, I'm cutting away my bottom line at some point. So is the trade-off for the number of people walking into my store that many, that much more? Or is what I'm giving them in the service and, and the product what they're really there for? It was a. Uh, it's been a tragic twenty four hours, of course, uh, in uh, in America. Uh, do you have any um, tips as far as uh, corporate security goes? I know this is an issue that comes up sometimes with larger businesses. How large does a business have to get uh, before you start thinking about some on site security? Well, I think you really have to consider security, no matter where you are in the world we're living in today. Uh, I'd love to say that uh, we could go back. I grew up in the country, and I'd like to think we could all go back to leaving our doors unlocked and uh, and living in that environment. The reality is that's not where we are right now. I, I think. Anybody who uh, is concerned about their own uh, their own safety, uh, and I think anybody who has an employee or has employees owes them the right to make sure that they're providing a safe environment. And whether that's four people or four hundred people, I think you have to have a, a reasonable security. Uh, I mean, obviously, somebody will sell you from extreme to extreme, but I think the key is you have to be taking security into account from from day one. And there's no doubt that if you're a retail store, uh, where it's much harder to to judge who walks through the front door, uh, you know, you've you've got to be extra careful in in in, in how you're addressing things. Our entrepreneur entrepreneur profile for this evening is Rob Sibthorpe of Love Pack. He'll join us next. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and F.L.'s Michael Newton with you. Josh is off this week. And let's get to our profile, Mike. Uh, let's introduce you to Rob Silpthorpe of Lovepack, a packaging manufacturer based right here in Montreal. Welcome to CJD, Rob. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So first question, uh, very easy. What is Lovepack? What do you do for a living? Uh, Love Pack, uh, we're a manufacturer of uh, industrial packaging. Um, our company's in uh, Ville Saint Laurent. Uh, we actually make corrugated boxes, uh, foam, uh, not the foam that you typically think of, polystyrene or styrene foam or your foam that's in your seat. It's a little bit in between those two, and they're really when you get a TV and you get the foam on the end, that's sort of the foam that we use. And, uh, and then we also combine that with wood crating. So we manufacture everything and um, right here right here in Quebec how'd you get into this business uh, you know it's funny I, I was on a bus to uh, on the Concordia shuttle bus mm-hmm. uh, and I basically needed a job and uh, I was talking about I wanted to get this outside sales job and uh, this guy on the bus said you should go interview over there and uh, I did and I, I 
He pounded me with many interviews. And uh, at the same time, I actually went on Green Avenue and hit everybody with a suit and, and a, uh, anybody, any woman with a business attire. And I just asked for a job for two days. And uh, I ended up getting offers on that on in, 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 uh, as a broker, uh, you know, financial broker. And, uh, but uh, I, this, my gut was to follow this outside sales job that paid a lot less. Uh, but I just felt that I wanted to build relationships and sell. So, yeah. And how long ago was that? That was 1993. So you want to go yeah. back to your uh, lead-in from the first sector, that whole discussion on security? I don't know if some guy shows up on my door asking for a job every day. I think I'm <laughs> going to tighten up the security a little bit. So so you were a recent grad. You were just you just had your CV. You didn't know what era you wanted to get into, and you just you were just asking around? Um, I, well, I really wanted, I needed a job. Uh, I wanted a job and I wanted to get a career going. And, uh, so I just said, I actually had a roommate and said, let's just go and go for it. We went on the street and started handing out our CVs just like that. And, uh, and then, uh, but I, I really did want to, uh, sell in like industrial selling and it didn't matter what. Uh, and then I found in, I found myself into this industry that, is interestingly creative. Uh, you're selling something that uh, you actually you're not you have nothing to sell because you can't carry these samples; they're too huge. So you're selling something tangible, but in an intangible way. So you're really just selling yourself. And uh, so and it's you gotta you you gotta have a good character and you gotta get respect because you have to go back and and sell it again because it's all repeat business. So you started this particular business 15 years ago. Fifteen years um, ago, how did you how did you fall upon the idea for this particular business? How did you get into here? And uh, you know, what, what, I guess what was the aha moment? Wow! Um, so I I provide <laughs> I provide therapy afterwards if you need it. So. Well, I fell into this industry. I thought it was really good, and uh, I thought I could do it well. And uh, so I end up going into my executive MBA at John Molson with the intention of writing a business plan because at the time you can write, there was a thesis you had to write and you were allowed to use a, do it as a business plan. So I went in and uh, I, uh, I really was all gung-ho. And then when you're in the first year, you learn a lot and then you become risk-averse. And uh, one teacher said exactly that. The more you know, the less you want to jump. You know. And I actually said, I, I'm not doing this. And in the summer, when it was all over, between the, the you know first and second year, I said, no, I'm doing this for sure. So I ended up writing this uh, thesis and business plan, and I still didn't have the guts or the money. And uh, I left, actually, the industry for two years specifically to test it. And I wanted to make sure I didn't want to have a conflict of interest, and I wanted to see how I could uh, you know, pull it off and, and test my theory. And two years later, I, we uh, we had my wife and I had a house in in Montreal West, and uh, February uh, came around, and I said, uh, "That's it." And she supported me, and we just literally sold the house a week later and moved uh, in August. And the moment I had the boxes unpacked, I uh, called my boss, who is who became my mentor for many many years after, and uh, and I told him I'm leaving, and he uh, he actually. He, uh, he wanted to uh, mentor me there, but he ended up mentoring me on my own my own uh, my so, own uh, path. So your initial seed money was the sale of your house. All in, yeah, all in with the house. 
So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to sense you didn't understand the risk assessment conversation <laughs> of JMSB. Uh, however, I do completely agree. And it's funny how you'll take a lot of professionals uh, mm -hmm. and have a very difficult time being good entrepreneurs because they spend too much time trying to assess the risk. And at a certain point in time, you've got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to have that gut feel to what you're doing. And clearly, I think that's what, what got you off the ground. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that... You know, you've done, you, you, you took a leap of faith and you had to trust, and I guess even more importantly, your wife had to trust that you were doing the right thing. Yeah, we, we had three kids at the time, and actually the, the week I unpacked those boxes, we were ready for another one, four. <laughs> so we had four on the way, fourth on the way, so we were all in. <laughs> so here's, here's a question. How, do, uh, how uh, can you take us back to, the, to those conversations, and maybe if entrepreneurs are listening, how, how do they know when, uh, when a risk is acceptable, when the stakes are that high? You know, I, I don't. I didn't just jump into it. I I, I wrote a 180-page ridiculous plan that really could be summed up in two day, two pages, and uh, I calculated the money and the and how much I think I could bring in. And I, I literally 18 to 24 months was when I was going to run out of cash. I was do or die, and it was literally 18 to 24 months. And that was challenging. But the most challenging time was the third year because it really took off. And I, I needed cash because I couldn't keep up with the growth. So I did what every classical uh, entrepreneur did and maxed my credit cards, borrowed from my oldest brother, uh, paid him back three months later. And it was amazing how quickly you can turn around, but amazing how insolvent you can become so quickly in a, in a, in a short period of time. So I got through that period and then just, you know, that whole path uh, to get to where I'm at. Uh, there's a whole other, there's a whole other uh, history there, yeah. I think when uh, when we come back from the break, I think we'll we'll dive into a little bit in terms of the custom side of the business that you're doing. From I think what you initially started out as outsourcing into manufacturing, and how you go out and get clients, and how you market uh, in something that you know normally would, you nobody would consider terribly sexy at the end of the day in packaging. But I have to tell you, looking at some of the things you've done, it's it's phenomenal to see the creativity that comes to it. Thank you. It's great. Yeah. So we'll talk more with Rob Sibthorpe of Love Pack in a second. And coming up in a little bit, Nick Moretis, tax partner on uh, at FL on those small business tax changes, the consultations ending today. And Nick will weigh in on that in depth before the end of the program. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by FL Montreal, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL's Mike Newton, who's in, uh, in for Josh Miller this week. Coming up in a little bit, we'll chat with FL's Nick Moretis, tax expert on those uh, business tax changes proposed federally. The consultations ended today, and I believe Nick might have one or two thoughts. Nick, may, Nick may have a couple. He's, uh, you know, he's not generally terribly opinionated, but I think he may have an opinion on it. <laughs> a lot of people fired up about this issue, so stay tuned for that. If you are a small or medium-sized business owner, you definitely don't want to miss that segment uh, after uh, the 45 traffic report. But for now, we are joined by Rob Silpthorpe of Love Pack. And Rob, you're talking about how you were very much self-started, got out of school uh, and wanted a business, started uh, literally just approaching people on the street looking for something to do. This led you to a business plan and an idea, Love pack um how how did you conceive of the business differently from others who are in packaging and, and what's special about love pack um our unique ability uh, i find uh we're pretty much the only one that brands uh our, our our name 
we used to actually have four uh, Fiats running around with uh, our logo and you know pizzazz all over the place. Uh, it got to a point where our competitors were following us, so we kind of stopped. So we got rid of those cars. Um, and our and our design department is actually it's unbelievable. As we I consider ourselves the expos of the MLB, meaning we mentor and bring in new young blood and and they obviously can go to move on to different careers but uh the stability and the uh ingenuity that comes out of our department is uh second to none i mean uh, we uh create stuff that's uh well i guess that's another uniqueness is that we identify our clients uh well we uh, we we um basically uh choose clients that have things that ship in things that are heavy fragile ship around the world uh, expensive, and our product is no more than one percent of the value of the product. So we'll ship something that's worth fifty thousand dollars, and the box will be maybe fifty bucks. So for a fifty dollar box or a fifty thousand product dollar product, uh, and it gets there safely, our clients are are very happy. So you're working on custom work. I mean, you're you're going out to market to to get custom jobs. I mean, obviously that there there there's two sides to that. One is it's a whole different target market when you go to when you go to look for a client. And two, uh, when you're looking at the design, are you doing the designs? Are your clients saying, "Hey, this is what it is. Fit us around it." How do you how do you go about doing that? Well, we have uh, three three designers in our department. It's actually we spend about two hundred thousand dollars a year in design. Um, we get a product or or drawings from the client, and we certainly take their ideas. Uh, we value their ideas one hundred percent. Um, but we bring them back. We uh, propose, uh, you know, we take in consideration the value and the fragility of it all, and we incorporate. We've we've come up with our own formula in so many ways. We standardize a lot of things uh, to really meet uh, their expectations, and I think that's the key. We our, our goal is to meet their expectations, if not exceed it. So, uh, um, yeah. It's interesting because you say it's only one percent of the value, yet you may be talking about still an expensive packaging. Yes, uh, I've packed uh, something that's worth about, uh, actually this one story, uh, a client that's in actually broadcast, uh, selling broadcast equipment, and they shipped this uh, one package, uh, one product that uh, literally went from ours to theirs, they packed it on site, it went on a, a truck on an airplane, arrived at the other side, got another truck distribution center, and then actually went on a camel, into the desert because it was going into there and it literally was arrived and it and they actually wrote a whole article on it that it, it arrived safely uh, uh, all those hits all those bangs and everything like that and it even has a shock watch on it like a like a sticker that if it tilts too much then the transport's sort of responsible and and it, it, it mag- magically made it the whole way uh, that whole way through I, so. I see a commercial right there <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the one thing that I find fascinating is is your commitment to green, your commitment to taking product that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize when in packaging and turning it into uh, highly, highly recycled. Yeah, well, corrugated is amazingly the most efficient, uh, uh, efficient, environmentally friendly product there is in the market, and that has nothing to do with me. That is just corrugated itself. Uh, in Canada, we actually recycle boxes seven times uh, and that's just basically the fiber getting too small. Uh, I don't want to bore you with all the little things like that but basically it's in itself already efficient. Uh, when you get to our foam uh, it's made a it's a P4, uh, your number four you can put in your blue box. Um, traditionally 
uh, I would even say seven years ago, all the foam on the market was white, which is basically using pure uh, resin beads to produce the product. Uh, I had 90 different foam products on my floor, which is A, an inventory nightmare, and secondly, uh, was just I said, hey, we can do better, and we went to the suppliers, and we created, uh, consolidated all 90 to six different uh, foam products to uh, increase our volume so that they can develop 100% uh, recycled before foam products. So we are now at 98% recycled before on Tom's River Foam. We have one piece of foam that has a blue liner that is not recycled before, and that's it. So we're at 98% before, and it's 100% recycled after. And we design our product accordingly. If we we, we actually heat the foam together. We don't glue it, and that way we they, they can recycle it all they want. What about in terms of uh, your marketing? Um, how, how do you distinguish yourself from your competitors? We do a lot of uh, blogging. Not, uh, not blogging, but a lot, yeah, a lot of blogging, a lot of uh, uh, SEO work. Um, I actually, for every dollar we spend, we get a fifty-six in sales. We, we have it down to the penny. Uh, we get 40,000 hits a year. Um, we get, uh, my videos are not so successful, but I do them religiously every month. Uh, they're there and do them in English and French and they go out there. I got maybe, if I'm lucky, a hundred views, but that, that, you know, it, it still stimulates it. But the actual, when we do little stories, every, every rep has to, has to write a story and then we send it out to a marketing uh, department that does all the graphics and we send in a monthly newsletter that goes out as well. And it's all linked. And it, we just it grows from there, and it actually brings in uh, forty thousand hits uh, a year. We get, we've actually had to reduce the leads because we get leads that didn't really mean anything. We had to kind of change the uh, the website a bit so we can get real good leads. And uh, now we're getting about two hundred fifty leads that result into about thirty four clients, thirty to forty clients a new year. Yeah, very nice. If you, uh, I mean, obviously the the video side is is interesting. I mean, what what kind of videos are you putting out? Are you putting out manufacturing process? Are you putting out customer type? What I put together, or are you singing and dancing for us? Um, well, it looks like I might be singing and dancing in there, but uh, no, I'm. <laughs> I uh, I was doing it selfie uh, myself, and now I got somebody holding the camera for me. Uh, I do it. Uh, I show you how it, how it's made, how a box is made. I uh, show you. Uh, how we actually, going back to the environment, I'll show you how we are trying to get rid of wooden pallets for our own use to our clients. We're trying to develop a corrugated pallet that just gets there, and uh, this way it's just 100% recyclable. We don't waste all these pallets that, that get thrown out. That'll give us, I think we're going to reduce about 20,000 pallets a year by doing that. Very nice. You mentioned uh, uh, earlier that you've got your one plant in Ville Saint Laurent and that uh, you've been going back and forth to Mexico. Yeah, uh, we have the, the plant uh, off of Côte d'Elias, which makes our corrugated boxes and our foam. In uh, November 1st, we are opening up the equal-sized plant to make wood, wood crating. So this will make us the only one in Quebec that makes all three products in our domain, which is called protective packaging. And then Mexico, I've been there for eight years and we're been um, encouraged to be like right next to all our clients uh, lately. So we're moving our plant to Guadalajara where we'll have another 15,000 square feet. So total will be about 50,000 square feet uh, uh, around. Yeah. And our, our friend south of the border, Mr. Trump, is not having any effect on uh, your Mexican business? Not at all. They 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 uh, 
they make it there and ship it around the world, and they go to their customers that uh, that like to buy from them. So no problem. Okay, just don't get yourself on the wrong list. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob, uh, you're gonna hang around, and in about uh, ten minutes or so, we'll have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Coming up next, Nick Moretis, tax partner at FL, goes through those small business tax changes. The consultations were ending today, and Nick has uh, some important information that he wants to share with the business owners in Montreal. That is next. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Mike Newton with you. In for Josh Miller here on Today's Entrepreneur. Our guest is Rob Sibthorpe of Love Pack, and he'll have his one piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur on the way. But first, Nick Moretis is here, tax partner at FL, on those very controversial small business tax changes. The consultation period, Nick, ended today, so uh, the government had the chance to hear out a lot of entrepreneurs and people in, in, in the sector, including including yourself. You guys wrote in. Yeah, well, they didn't call me up to tell me what uh, they're going to do, uh, but what they are planning to do uh, there's four main actually there's five um, two uh, became law July 18 and that impacts uh, what we call capital gain planning so if a businessman dares to organize his, his uh, corporations to be able to pay a capital gains tax which is half of what a salary would be apparently that's against the law so that's two that already came in July 18 uh, the other two start uh, January the 1st, 2018, and that basically involves the family's involvement in the business. And then the last is an idea that uh, we're still talking about that may come in. Uh, the big one that's affecting uh, the entrepreneurs is the concept now is there's one leader, one CEO, one boss, and that's the person who can receive anything from the family business and pay whatever tax rates they're going to pay, high, low, whatever. Anybody else in the family who's involved in the business is not supposed to get anything more than what a third party would have gotten if you hired a stranger to do the work. Uh, and the problem with that is um, the concept that if an, another family member could be a shareholder and be entitled to share in the profits of the business is now nebulous. We can probably understand um, the, the main th idea what the, the minister came out with that if the family member is not involved at all in the business, why should they be allowed to receive a dividend? Um, unfortunately, we are all allowed to be shareholders of any company. There's no law that says if you want to be a shareholder, you have to necessarily work in the company. So long as you pay for the shares, you become a shareholder. But with a, with a private corporation, it does, it does mean the reality is that uh, businessmen can pay amounts to various family members, even though they're not involved. So we, we've had several entrepreneurs uh, who are family business owners here on the program, some of whom who split it 50-50. Yeah. You're saying that in some cases, what was a 50-50 business, now someone has to be the primary? Well, what it, what, it, what it basically means is that who who gets the, the I guess, the profits at the end of the day. So if, um, Rob, you're, let's say you're, the, let's pretend you're the only shareholder of the family business today. You're the only one who's entitled to those profits. If you want to bring in uh, your wife as a shareholder, if you want to bring in your four children, if I recall, as shareholders assuming they're adults, uh, there was already an existing uh, plethora of, of rules that we had to follow as to what to do. But generally speaking, uh, if your spouse was there, you can pay her a dividend. 
Uh, she doesn't have to show up at work at all. She's a shareholder, so it doesn't, uh, doesn't require you to work. You can also do so for your kids. And in many cases that we find in, in most of the families, the amounts usually are, are paid are, are to use up the low tax rates. And yes, they are saving taxes. And the government's turning around and saying, well, we don't want you to do that anymore. Um, what we, we will tolerate that if your spouse and your kids are working in the business, that yes, you should pay them, but you should pay them no more than you would have paid had you hired a third party. And this is where we're having difficulty because when you read the law, what I just said really quick on the radio is, is pretty it's pretty logical. Yeah, yeah, so you'll, we'll hire them and we'll do something with them. But when you read the law, it becomes very difficult. So what if uh, Rob, your eldest, decides to go into the business with you? Well, and, and, they're, and they're there, they're working the 50, 60 hours, they're following you, they're learning. Well, technically, the way when I read the rules, they're still not allowed to get anything more than what you would have hired if you hired me to do this. And, you know, and we're not blood. So this is where we're having some issues. So if I look at, Rob, you mentioned earlier, you know, the family got involved to help you out in your third year as you were um, you know, needed cash. Uh, your wife gave up the half of the house that in theory belongs to her to invest in your business. Well, all these people, had they become shareholders, because they could have asked you, let me be a shareholder as well. Today, if they're family, they're limited to receive a market rate of return on their loans. So if you do very well and you can be you know, spilling money coming out of your coffers like crazy and you want to reward them with a hefty dividends, the government will come along today. Be my guest. You can pay them. But what we will do is we'll carve out what we think is unreasonable and we'll tax it at the top rate, which is 53%, say, even though they're nowhere near that rate. And, and that's the issue. The, the big problem I have, Nick, is <clears throat> continues to be this whole discussion of risk premium and what really defines a family business. I mean, anybody who's been in a family business, uh, you know, you come home every day. The conversation doesn't end at 5 o'clock on Friday. The family is brought through the business. The family lives and breathes that business. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at what's being proposed, and to me, we're kind of nullifying the risk premium associated with taking on that stress, taking on a pressure to a family in order to try and meet a political agenda. It, it it may very well be. Uh, I've I got to look at what the numbers right now are telling us, and the, what the numbers seem to be telling us is this is going to be a uh, could be a serious tax hit. And if and I go back, if your kids are adults, I'm not sure you look young, so maybe not. But if your kids were 18 and over, uh, you're talking five people that you may have been able to pay dividends now that that you can't do that anymore. So if I if I multiply that, and you still need that cash to go out to fund their lives. Uh, well, that your tax had just went up by quite a bit. So, in addition to all these other cha- all these changes that are happening, the one little thing we don't tend to talk a lot about is not only the ongoing every day, but what I'm also seeing is that they've they've upped the what I call the death taxes for uh, business owners and own businesses. Um, if you passed away today and and, your sh- and the shares of your company were not being bequeathed to your spouse, where there would be no tax, it would be transferred to your spouse. But let's say you're transferring your shares over to your children. Um, prior to July 18, we had two, two uh, routes that we were allowed to take. One is paying the death tax, which is about 25% capital gain. And the other one is liquidate the company if that gave us a better result. So we used to always reorganize it. And pay the twenty five. Well, now what's what the with the new rules that kicked in already on July eighteen? Um, you're basically stuck having to liquidate the company or pay a tax rate of about forty percent, not the twenty five. 
Real quick, Nick, uh, what about the government claiming to attack the problem of passive income? Do, do you agree with that? That's that that's the idea. That that well, no, there's no accountant or tax person who does. Um, it's and it, what you're impacting is 50 years of tax planning. There's people who are counting on that. They were in their in their retirement, and there was even um, uh, financial advisors who said, "Don't take out a salary. Grow your holding company. You'll live off of that." Well, the tax rate just went from 50 to 70 percent. And so, so Mike, there's an assumption that something sinister is going on here, but that's often not the case. Well, I mean, they keep making this reference to loopholes and everybody circumventing the system. No, none of this is loopholes. This was very saying, sanctified by my, the government for the last my, 50 years. My my biggest problem with this whole event is passive income for a serial entrepreneur will always find its way being reinvested. And if you're going to tax it, it's not going to find its way back into the market in the same way. We could do a whole show on this, but we're out of time. We we, we could argue about this for hours. We'll see see what the government decides. They've heard you guys, uh, as well as many entrepreneurs. Let's head over to Rob Silpthorpe of Love Pack. And and Rob, let me ask you uh, what your one piece of advice is for today's entrepreneur. For my, as an entrepreneur, um, I'd say... uh, be a specialist, not a generalist. And uh, basically, look at my industry. There's a uh, 200 box companies out there, and I've gone into a area protective packaging where there's only five competitors. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and great advice, great story, and uh, and great hustle in in the 90s. Rob, we appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, out there in Green Avenue, thanks, handing guys. out CVs. 100. percent Yeah. Now, now, now they'll send security after you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob Silpthorpe of Love Pack. Thanks so much. Nick Moretta's tax partner at FL on those controversial changes. Uh, lots of blogs about that, by the way, at the FLMontreal.com. If you want to check that out, along with eight years worth of entrepreneur profiles, FLMontreal.com community section there. Thanks very much, Mike, and we'll see you back here next Monday night. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thank you.